All right, well, good morning. Thank you for your worship this morning. It was a blessing to be able to do that together. Just want to give you, if you're a guest, uh, you probably, maybe you came to Faith Bible Church for the first time this morning. You drove in uh, and you saw this very large construction project going on here on our west side, or maybe you've been here for a long time and you know that that thing's been happening for the last couple of months. Just give you a little update on uh, what's going on with that. That thing is progressing very, very nicely. Uh, so started off with a lot of dirt work and bringing things up uh, to a certain grade. That dirt work, dirt work is completed despite some summer rain that uh, probably wasn't really expected. Uh, the piers were drilled and set, and so that's all good to go. Uh, footings and grade beams are now in place, and so what I've been told is next uh, is a foundation and structural steel. So maybe by the end of this month, you're going to start seeing something sort of rise up off of the earth. Now, there's a ton of rain coming this week, uh, so I could be wrong about that. Uh, we don't want to pray against the rain. It's always good to get rain around here, uh, but uh, without any great delay, you might see some steel rising up off the site here in the next couple of weeks, which is an exciting development. I have a joke for you. It connects with churches and buildings and these kinds of things. So one Sunday morning, a minister was preoccupied with uh, the thoughts of how he was going to ask his congregation to come up with more money than they were expecting to repair the church's building. Therefore, he was very annoyed to find that the regular organist was sick that day and a substitute had to be brought in at the last minute. And so, of course, the substitute wanted to know what she should play. Well, here's a copy of the service, the pastor said impatiently. But you have to think of something to play after I make the announcement about the finances. And so during the service, the minister paused and said to the congregation, Brothers and sisters, we are in a great difficulty. The roof repairs cost twice as much as we expected, and we need $8,000 more. Any of you who can pledge $500, please stand up. And at that moment, the substitute organist played the Star-Spangled Banner. <laughs> and that is how the substitute organist became the regular organist <laughs> at that church. <laughs> Pretty good stuff there. Uh, we've begun a short sermon series on the church. And as I mentioned last week, when starting a series like this one, there are likely a few hurdles that we have to clear. The first hurdle that I mentioned is the fact that not everyone's experience with the church has been very good. Uh, the, the church has frustrated people and confused people and, and even hurt people. Some of you in this room, maybe, the church has deeply disappointed you or mistreated you. It seems that every week now we have a new account of how another church has abused its spiritual authority or how some high-profile pastor has behaved badly. And those stories, they grieve us because they bring reproach upon Christ and his church, but also because a person has been deeply hurt in the process. And so when a pastor comes along and decides to preach a sermon series on the importance of the church, on everyone's need for the church, there are people who can't get past the pain that's been caused them by the church. And that pain is real, and it lingers for a long time, and so that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle I mentioned was the fact that some of you here, some of you, when you hear that we're doing a sermon series on the church you don't see at all how it applies to what you're dealing with in your life today. 
you've got marital problems or money problems or health problems. Maybe things are really pressing in on you from all sides. You're very stressed out. So to you, learning about what God's word has to say about the church, that's sort of nowhere on your radar. You're just wanting some practical teaching, maybe some encouragement just to get you through the next week. That's a hurdle. And then the third hurdle I mentioned is that the tradition and the heritage that's inherent to every church exists in this one as well. This church is almost 40 years old, which isn't really, really old, but it's also not new either. And in any established church, there are at least a few patterns and traditions that may be widely held and widely cherished. But at the same time, those beliefs, they may not always be the teaching of Scripture. So we'll need to be careful with that hurdle if we bump up against that. And you remember that I shared a quotation from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was affectionately called the Prince of Preachers in his day. He was a man whose influence on the church and love for the church was as great as anyone's. He said, and I'm going to put this on a slide for you here. He said, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had one, if I had found one, I should say, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I would become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. And it's out of that quote, that's, that's why we've called our series Perfectly Imperfect, because we're recognizing together that this thing called church is not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. We're not trying to fool anyone into thinking that we're perfect. We are far, far from perfect, aren't we? We screw up every day. We, we battle sin and pride and lust and jealousy and greed and, and anger and all kinds of pettiness. And so real, real quick, we can agree that no one in this room has it all together. The church is a sanctuary for sinners. This is a, a hospital for the spiritually sick. But at the same time, it's also a gathering of the saints. The Bible tells us it's a fold for Christ's sheep. It's a home for God's family. And it's the church that God has ordained to express his tangible presence on this earth. The, God, the church is God's perfect plan for his people, his chosen tool to grow his people, to nurture, nurture his people, to reach his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's the church that God has used, that God is using and will continue to, to use to do all of those things. So as broken as the church is, as imperfect as it may be, Christ died for it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has a perfect plan for his church. So last week we got into Ephesians chapter 2. So if you brought your Bibles, please turn back there to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish up that chapter today. And what last week's study showed us is the church is this incredibly beautiful thing. Ephesians 2.17 says that the church first consists of God bringing together people who are far off and people who are near. And in Paul's day, Paul was the writer of this letter to the Ephesians, in Paul's day, what this near-far language meant was the church had brought Jew and Gentile together. Paul says to the Gentile, you were the ones who were far off. 
And to the Jew, Paul says, you are the ones who were near. And so the gospel of peace, the message of Jesus, when embraced and believed, it bears the fruit of unity in the church. These two hostile groups, they're brought together. These conflicted races are brought together to form a new race, a new people who are themselves new creations wrought by God. And in our study last week, we, we took that thinking and we applied it to our day, to this context. We said a, a church like ours is comprised of some who, who might have grown up with Christian parents, people who grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They grew up learning scripture and memorizing their books of the Bible, showing up at Awana, looking like General Patton with all of their badges and patches and pins, and, and they're the ones that are near. God showed up in that and saved them, did a genuine work. They're the ones that are near. And at the same time, at the same time, our church might be comprised of those who didn't have that sort of training. People who didn't grow up in church, people who still may not know their books of the Bible, have to use the tabs on the outside. Maybe they have about two verses memorized. Maybe they think it's a little weird when people in the church call each other brother. Those are the people who are far off. But they're in. They've embraced Christ. God has saved them. And with both of those groups, God saved them by his grace. And it didn't take more grace to save one group than it did the other. Both needed a lot of grace. The gospel of peace came to both the near and the far off in a way that rescued them from their sin and their separation from God. And not only that, Paul goes on to say within that diversity... The far off and the near brought together. Within that, the members of the church are now fellow citizens. To the world, they may look like aliens and, and, and strangers, but in the church, there is a shared citizenship. All believers having the same standing and value in the church's existence. And then last we, lastly, we, we saw that Paul described the church as a household, basically saying the church is a family. We're a family. So when we do call each other brother or sister, it's not actually weird. We do it because it's fundamentally true. Jesus is our older brother. God is our father. We are a family. Therefore, where we landed in seeking to answer the question, what is the church, we concluded that the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a pastor. It's a people, not a program. In other words, you don't go to church. You are the church. Now, church buildings are everywhere in Edmond, but those buildings, they are just tools for ministry. They're just places where those who love Christ can gather and worship and be discipled and build one another up, places to strategize about how Christians can more intentionally love and share the gospel in the spaces where they work and live. But the church is a people, not a location. And so to summarize all of that, in this section of Ephesians 2, Paul, beginning verse 17, he starts with this wide scope, those far off and those near. Basically saying that the church is a people from everywhere. And God takes these people from everywhere, these citizens of nowhere, and he makes them a city. He makes them fellow citizens living together in this city on a hill. And not only that, but he makes them a family. They're the household of God. The Holy Spirit gives them new birth. And by virtue of being born again, God adopts every single person in the church as one of his children. You're a child of God if you've trusted in Christ and are added to his, his church. So now in our passage today, we'll see that, that Paul mixes in yet another metaphor. Paul's high school English teacher utterly failed him. 
All right? you, you read Paul, he's got all these run-on sentences, crazy punctuation, all these mixed metaphors. It's just a mess, but the Holy Spirit uh, is infused through all that and, and delivers this beautiful, beautiful, rich message. Let's read it together. I'm going to start where I started last week and just read that passage again, but we're going to focus more on the second half, verses 20 to 22. But let's pull it all together. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. And he, he being Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. So this week's question, how's the church built? If the church was a place or a building, the instructions on how it is to be built would be much, much different than what we see at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. And along with that, those God calls into pastoral ministry would also be much, much different. Because let me tell you right now, you don't want me physically building anything. Legos, maybe. I do okay with Legos. But with tools, man, I, I got nothing. And the thing is, I grew up with a dad who could fix anything. He could build anything. He, could, he designed anything. He loved that stuff. We, we never called a handyman, never took a car to the mechanic. He was like MacGyver. Give him duct tape and a crescent wrench, and you know, problems would just get solved. And what's heartbreaking is I didn't get any of that. That just skipped me entirely, which is crazy because every single Reisner male in my generation is an engineer. I have five cousins that are male. All of them are engineers. On a good day, I can do long division. My, my girls are, in, are about to be in eighth grade. I think it was two years ago I stopped being able to help them with their math. And so all that to say, I'd be useless in ministry if the church was about building an actual building. But it's not a building or about building a building. The instructions in God's word are about how to build the church as a people. Incidentally, my engineering cousins may have gotten A's in physics, but they didn't get a lot of dates. <laughs> they weren't as socially aware, maybe. But I've always been able to work with people. I like people. I enjoy people. I think God called me into ministry because, again, the church is a people. So how is the church built? How is the people built? Well, this passage shows us three major components regarding the construction of the church. And appropriately, or perhaps ironically, it uses architectural language. The church is not a physical building, but Paul uses the language of a physical building to tell us how it is built. He tells the Ephesians three things about how to build the church. He says, one, the foundation of the church. He gives us that. Two, he tells us, about the cornerstone of the church. And then three, something about the structure of the church, the walls. So with that long on-ramp, let's look first at the foundation of the church. The passage says it very plainly. This family, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what we need to be clear about is whether Paul is saying the foundation is the apostles and prophets themselves or perhaps something else. 
And so it helps to see that when the phrase the apostles and prophets is used in the New Testament, it's very often in reference to the two foundational offices in the church. And what the apostles and prophets did, notice I said did, because those two categories aren't around anymore, what the apostles and prophets did was proclaim to the people the word of God. So the apostles is referring to those who saw Jesus and walked with Jesus, guys who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, guys like Peter and John and James and the Apostle Paul. These are the apostles. And it's not so much that they are in and of themselves the foundation of the church, but they are those who laid the foundation for the church. The foundation of sound doctrine they put down, their teaching and preaching on the person and work of Christ is the foundation of the church. The prophets are referring to both these same apostles and perhaps others in the early church who were consistently proclaiming the fundamental truths about Christ being the Messiah. So there's only one definite article in that phrase that reads the apostles and prophets. So you could interpret that to mean the same group, meaning the apostles who were the prophets. Or as you read the rest of Paul's writing, you see that there was another group of teachers in the church called prophets who were not necessarily the apostles, but as the New Testament canon was being established, they were affirming and spreading that apostolic message. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul makes a declaration. He says, no other foundation can a man lay than that which is Christ Jesus. So Jesus is very much the foundation, and it was these apostles and prophets, these heralds of the apostolic message, they are not the foundation as much as they are the layers of the foundation. They they have passed on faithfully the message of Jesus Christ. And if you distill all of that, what Paul means is the foundation laid for the church is the word of God. God gave us his word through the apostles that we might build excuse me, build upon that word, that we might be shaped by that word, that we might in glad submission come under the word and celebrate the word. No man, no church, no teacher has any real authority except the word of God. And that is why this morning and just about every Sunday morning, this pulpit is tied very closely to a text of scripture. By the grace of God, nobody will ever stand up here in this pulpit and say, look at me, look what, that, look what I have to say. Don't I have great advice for you? Aren't I insightful? No, we don't want to do that here. That, that's not the way we want teaching to happen. Mark and I want to stand up here and say, look at this. Look at what God says. Look at how God says this works. This is, this is what the Lord is speaking to us. This is how he wants to speak. That's what we want to do. Life tips and inspiring stories and and jokes that are clean enough to tell in church. You know, that stuff can be appealing. But do you know how long that lasts in your heart and your mind? Maybe lunch. It maybe lasts through lunch. But if the word of God takes root in your soul, if the word of God penetrates your heart and your mind, now we're moving Now we've got some real fuel to work with because it's the word of God that's been given to shape the people of God. And if we are a people shaped by the word of God, you know what we become? We become a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We become a family that takes care of one another. We become a people who reveal the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenlies. We, as Ephesians 3.10 says, we are this 
this body that the angels look at and marvel at how God has chosen to do his work. But it requires that our foundation be the word of God. Not tradition or custom or anything else, but God's word. One pastor said it this way. He said, the word stands in authority over us as long as it remains the sure footing under us. And I like that. Any church or movement or denomination that distances itself from the word of God, that demotes scripture's centrality and authority, that place, that people, they're on the road to ruin. I do believe that. Probably you've seen that. Seen churches that that place their own authority above the word of God instead of under it. It was Dutch theologian Herman Bavink who wrote this. He says, Scripture's authority is not granted by the church. The opposite is true. Scripture founded the church. So the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the word of God. We build on that. We don't add to it. We build on it. It's thick enough. It's sure enough. It's stable enough. That's point one. Second, second piece of architecture we see in this passage is the cornerstone, which Paul identifies as Jesus Christ himself. So the word of God delivered by the apostles and prophets is the foundation. It's then very consistent that the content of that word, Jesus Christ, he is the one who serves as the cornerstone to the church. In the ancient world, when significant construction was primarily accomplished with stones... The cornerstone was the major stone that was laid down. It was the stone that had to be large enough to support the superstructure of whatever it was that was being built. It had to be accurate because though all of the walls were going to be conformed to the angle of that stone. But the cornerstone framed everything. It was the thing to which everything would be adapted. It was the support. It was the unifier, the connector, the strength giver. It was everything. And to the church, all that the cornerstone is meant to be, it is embodied in Jesus Christ. The whole house that is the church rests on Jesus Christ. This idea is repeated in Scripture, both Old Testament and New. You remember the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16, where it proclaims, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. And in Psalm 118 says somewhat prophetically, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Acts chapter 4, what gets imported there is that Old Testament idea and it's proclaimed to the religious leaders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so let me apply what this means for us at Faith Bible Church. What this means is that no aspiration other than knowing and savoring and praising Jesus Christ will ever hold this church together. No other aspiration other than knowing, savoring, and praising Jesus Christ is strong enough to hold this place together. That's what we must be about. And why is that true? Because it is our union with Jesus Christ, it is there that we experience the transforming grace of God. And that grace alone enables us to walk one another in a, with one another in a way that is distinctively Christian. We don't walk in true love and joy and humility apart from Christ. We just don't. 
And here's what I mean by that. When the grace of God comes to you and it absolutely wrecks you and dismantles your, your pride and your hostility toward God or even your self-righteousness and your hypocrisy, when you make a confession to God about your shortcomings and your failures and his response to you isn't punitive, which is to say God doesn't move to smite you right there where you are. Rather, he moves to smother you with mercy and compassion When you come to realize that and experience that, that does something to you. When you expect and deserve God for for God to punish you and he hugs you, it deeply affects you. And here's how that works itself out in the church. When, When you're an experiencer of grace, you become an extender of grace. If you haven't experienced grace, you're not going to extend it because you tend to want justice over grace. Remember Jonah? Yeah, this was Jonah's massive problem. He wanted God to deal with Nineveh, not to be kind to them. And it's a massive problem in the church when its people forsake Jesus Christ and his grace as foundational to the life of the church. Think about how cruddy a place the church would be if nobody extended to anyone else any grace. Some of you are like, I've been in that church. And the primary problem in churches like that, churches where there is no grace, isn't simply that people are just sort of ugly to one another. The primary problem is that few, if anyone there, has ever really experienced grace, which means Jesus is not the cornerstone. The person and work of Christ does not shape and form the church's ministry and relationships and and, and conflict resolution and worship and, and teaching. There's nothing supernatural going on in a church community that is without grace. It is in these places that lack grace that that everybody tends to look exactly alike and think alike and and dress exactly alike. And what these places celebrate is outward uniformity, and they mistake that outward uniformity for gospel unity, and it's really not that. And people in these churches tend to think that that the world ignores their witness because they're so countercultural. But the reality is the world sees nothing supernatural about their fellowship. They see people united by politics or socioeconomics, and they conclude, well, of course they get along with one another. They're all exactly alike. Like what Scott Sauls says to this issue, he writes, you know, sometimes, sometimes it takes having differences, not understanding one another, and even being a little bit irritated by and bored with one another to remind us that church is a family and not a club. And part of what he means there is this, You get to choose who gets in a club, but God chooses who he places in the life of a local church, and it takes a supernatural grace to embrace everyone. Without experiential grace among those together in community, all of the stones just fall to the ground because people cannot be gracious to each other, and if people cannot accept one another and forgive one another as they have been forgiven, the church is just doomed to failure. Christ the cornerstone means we've experienced things in Christ that we are then able to extend to others. Puritan Thomas Watson, he's brilliant on this subject. He says, there is no perfection here. Speaking of people in the church. There is no perfection here. In some, rash anger prevails. In some, inconstancy. In some, too much love of the world. A saint in this life is like gold in the ore, 
Much dross of infirmity cleaves to him, yet we love him for the grace that is in him. The best emerald has its blemishes, the brightest star their twinklings, and the best of the saints have their failings. You that cannot love one another because of his infirmities, how would you have God love you? It's good to be reminded, it's good to be reminded that it was while you were at your worst that Christ died for you. It's while you were at your worst that Christ died for you. That's worth celebrating, folks. It wasn't me on my best day who God loved. No. God loved me on my worst day. The day that I would be most ashamed of. The the, the day that I'll most regret. The the moments and the actions that I just wish I could go back and change. It is right there. It's in that mess that Christ shows up and he says, You're mine. I love you. I have purchased you with my blood. And so that's our celebration. And that's how having Christ as the cornerstone shapes us as a people. We take our position in line with his position, which is our gracious and perfect substitute on the cross. And so the realities of the gospel, those are the things that fix the lines and the angles of the church. Last thing, final thing Paul tells us the church is built with. Church is built with living stones fit together. Twice he mentions being joined together or, or, or built together. The verb there in verse 21 for joined together, it's a rare verb in the Greek, and it means every part fits snug. And what that means is when God builds his church, it fits. It's firm, it's not loose or ill-arranged, unstable or shoddy, but it's solid, it's cohesive, snug, firm. Every stone fitted perfectly into its place without defect or mistake. I've been a part of some construction meetings. Actually, there's a weekly construction meetings. I'm basically a non-contributor in those meetings. I sit and listen to Tim Scott and Bruce DeFries, and they talk about things that are way over my head. And this last week, we were talking about the structural steel. And in my uninitiated brain, I'm thinking, yeah, steel goes up, you bolt it together, and then you just kind of build things around it. That's how it works. But we were getting into some issues we're having with the calculations for this steel. And my thought is, well, you know, you just got to know how long it is or how tall it needs to be, and, and you make it work. And as we talked about it, they start talking about things like load and twist and give and play and, 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 and the things that actually make a building such as that stable when you think about wind and and again, load, and even earthquakes, and, and why, how and why that thing is going to have to stand depends on, on what goes in to the specifics relating to these structural pieces. And so I think about God as the sort of divine superintendent of this building project, who is the people of God. And it's just crazy that he has those calculations all worked out. I mean, it's not crazy that he has the ability to do it, but it's crazy that in his sovereign plan, he's taken every factor and integer into view. It's crazy because we, we, we have people that have literally been part of this church for almost 40 years. And we you know, have people that have been here for less than four weeks. We've got people that have been Christians most of their lives, 40, 50, 60 years, and others who have been believers for just like six months. So we have some that are mature in their years, yet immature in their faith. Some who are immature in their years, but very, very mature in their faith. And here's what the Bible's saying. It's saying that Jesus, 
by the word of God and by being the cornerstone of the church, creates an environment where the big mature stones rest up against the smaller stones and where the jagged stones can fit right against the smooth stones, where the old stones have a place next to the young stones, and God, because he's God, can take those stones and actually build a people for his name. Now, because we're joined together, what that means is we are in close proximity to one another. And when you're, when you're close proximity to someone, you see their flaws and their imperfections and their abrasions, and this right here is where and how the church is very necessary for your sanctification. In our relating to one another and serving together and having conflict and resolving conflict, God has fit all that together for your growth and godliness. If you're here and you're plugged in, there's an aspect of your holiness. You're going to be irritated into holiness by the people around you. You're going to be a little bit annoyed, but as you deal with that and work through that and love people in spite of that, there's going to be growth happening. When you serve people in the midst of some of those differences, cool things will take place. The church has mature Christians who are required to be patient with new Christians. Patience is hard for us. The church has struggling Christians that need grace from, from healthy Christians. The church has rebellious Christians who need to be disciplined from those who are in positions of authority. None of that stuff's easy. But it's all necessary. And the prerequisite for it is that we're, we're fit together. We're in close proximity to one another. And some of this is why you stand in opposition to God's word if you have a view that says, I love Jesus, but not the church. Because what God actually calls you to is to love one another, and it takes a church body for you to obey that calling. As we read those one another's in Scripture, there's 50 plus of them. They're not generic in nature. They're not saying, oh, just love each other sort of amorphously out there in the void. No, those directives were given to specific churches in specific locations, and so as we apply them, we need to apply them to our specific church in our specific location. This is the people that you're called to live those one another's out with. And to not live them out is to be in opposition to them. He has a place for you, for you to be joined together, fitly framed with other believers so you can live out these biblical directives. So just to fit this point in with our series, I'll say this. Though no church is 100% perfect, Having no church is 100% imperfect. Again, we've repeated it. Church is a people, not a place. That was the answer to our question last week. This week, how is it built? It's built with the word of God and the person and work of Christ growing in the hearts of people that God has joined together. With the word of God and the person and work of Christ growing in the hearts of people that God, in his sovereign superintendence, has joined together. One of the fascinating realities about the church at Ephesus is that these people lived in the shadow of the temple Artemis. And as you probably know, this shrine to the goddess Diana, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So in verse 21, as Paul is telling them that they would grow into a holy temple in the Lord, 
the Ephesian frame of reference for a temple was this massive temple structure that was sitting right there in their own city. The temple Artemis was 450 feet long, so one and a half football fields long. It was 220 feet wide, 60 feet high. It had 127 perfectly formed and symmetrical columns. Listen to how one ancient historian described this temple in Ephesus. He's describing it in contrast or in comparison to the other wonders of the world. He says, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mesulus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliance. And so Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, you guys, you're going to be built into God's true temple. It's not this pagan temple that you see hanging over your city. You're going to be a true temple. And as that takes place, you, people of God, you will be the true wonder of the world. Your brilliance will be unmatched by those who gaze upon you. And as a, parable, as a parallel to that bit of historical context, we read in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, that when the great temple of Solomon, when that was constructed in Jerusalem, Scripture says that only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Now again, I'm not a builder. I don't know how this is supposed to work, but to my knowledge, no other building in history was built in that way. So holy, so sanctified was the work that its construction was done almost silently. Silently, the stones were moved and, and added, and, and the building rose to be this grand structure. So it is with the church. So it is with the church, and what I mean by that is we do not hear audibly what's going on inside the hearts and minds of people as God the Holy Spirit creates new life and adds those individuals to the temple that he is building. We don't hear it, but God is working. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of that. And this morning, if God is working in your heart, if you know, if you know that you need to trust in Christ because you never have, that you need to trust in Christ because you know yourself to be a sinner and you know him to be a savior. If you know that there's enough grace in him to cover all the sin in you and you've, and you've never taken that step to transfer your trust from whatever you're putting it in and putting it into Christ, I invite you to do that today. Transfer your trust. Look to him. Be saved. Talk to a friend that brought you. Talk to a family member that's by your side if you're a young person. Put your trust in Christ. Be added. Be, be, be fitly framed to this temple that God is building. And once again, as you look at these closing verses, this is Trinitarian work on display in this passage. In Christ, we're joined together. In Christ, joined together in a dwelling place for God. And this is accomplished by the work of the Spirit. So we have the Godhead, all three persons that are vested and a part of God's people, the church. 
And what that means, the upshot of that, is that none of us are here by accident. God is doing his work. He's building his church. He's building it on his word and upon Jesus Christ. And the whole thing is rising up with living, chosen stones. That's you and me. We're here as God gives us his grace and puts us together to to bring him glory and to spread his fame on this earth. Let's go to the Lord together as we close. Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we come to you this morning. And we just count it a privilege to pray to you, the God of the universe. You you hear our prayers. We have access to you through the work of your Son. And so, Lord, I thank you for this time with this people as we've praised you and given, given you our worship, given you our hearts today. I pray that we've done that in spirit and in truth and And what you've received from us has been a sweet offering. God, I thank you for what you're doing here, both in the the physical building project to our west, but also to this spiritual building project that's far more important and far more glorious. God, I pray that you just continue to do that work. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the know-how to build this thing. But we look to you because we know you do. And we look to your grace and we, and we look to the, to the mercy that we need to be loving and kind and accepting of one another, to serve one another, and to minister to, another, to one another in meaningful ways in these days ahead. I pray that you take these people as they leave here today and you make them that city on a hill. You make them that salt of the earth, that people who, whose lives and hearts and minds are always pointing to their Savior, our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction, please. As Seth mentioned in his uh, opening, there is a welcome center on the west end of this uh, uh, four-year area right outside these doors. If you're a guest this morning, go by there, get some information from Seth. He'll probably get a little bit of information from you. Uh, We'd love to be able to follow up with you, minister to you in whatever way we can in the the days and weeks ahead. You really are our honored guest. If you're wondering uh, when Mark's going to be preaching again, he'll be back in the pulpit next week. Um, and then the week after that, on the 26th, we'll conclude this study and then move into some new things uh, beginning in uh, September. So I'm just going to send you out of here with the ending of Ephesians chapter 3. These verses will be somewhat familiar to you. Beginning in verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. With that, you're dismissed. Thanks for being here.